Growing up, my mom was a reading teacher for elementary and middle school, and uh, I loved to read uh, and to be read to as a kid, and anyone who knows me or has been in my office knows books are pretty important to my daily life. Um, and having the mom that I had, probably the deck was stacked against me, right? But, you know, my childhood rebellions were pretty minor, and, and so one of my rebellions was I, I stopped reading. And it, it probably also coincided with, with uh, like, the advent of sparknotes.com and the Internet and realizing that you didn't have to read a long book if you just got the synopsis. But uh, when I started following Christ at the end of high school, and then I went to Florida State, yeah, Florida State, uh, as a freshman, um, and I went there, and it, it was a pretty lonely year, actually, for me. So I had not a lot of friends and a lot of time, and I took back up into reading. Um, in fact, I, I delved headlong into a, a whole fiction series. Like, I, I devoured these. Like, I have friends that do this with, like, Harry Potter and stuff. I actually had friends that they, when the, the newest Harry Potter came out, they wanted to read it so much, but didn't want to buy two books that one would read one side of the page and the other would read the other, and they would like flip pages and both read. And yeah, that happened. Maybe I wasn't that intense. But I devoured this series. I couldn't get enough of, of these books' intensity and, and their vividness, the way they, they kind of imagined the world of the Bible intersecting with our world and. And they kind of showed this inevitable conflict and endurance and repentance and ultimately redemption. These books, of course, were the Left Behind series. And it sold a million copies. There's a video game. There's also currently a movie starring Nicolas Cage, which is kind of amazing. I admit... Now I'm a little embarrassed to say that those books captivated me so much. I'm, I'm surely too enlightened for that. But I was really drawn into this world of Rayford Steele and Buck Williams and the Antichrist, Nikolai Carpathia. I was young in my faith, but this fiction made sense of the world. And it made sense of the confusing place that I was in and that, that I think we're all in, living in light of Christ resurrection and struggling and waiting for Christ's return. Those books helped me to kind of start to imagine as a young college kid a, a tension um, and a break with the way things are. They helped me a, kind of long for a time when God's kingdom would come. And years later, uh, as I matured in my faith a little I, I'd like to think I read some better books, including the Bible, more deeply. I surrounded myself with uh, other believers, that, and, and these people, um, the church, normal church people, not superheroes or scholars, they possessed a, a really robust and biblically faithful and creative and challenging vision for what God has in store for his creation. So I then I stopped reading the Bible, the, the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. I, I, I stopped reading it that way, and I started reading it as a story that I was called to participate in. The story that, of the same God that paid the ultimate price by sending his son to die to save the world. Now 
that same God wasn't abandoning the world or asking me to. That this is a God that would end all things by creating a new beginning. So I'm going to invite Abby to come up and read and, and kind of have two uh, narratives, one from Isaiah 60 and one from uh, Revelation 21 that, that Abby's going to read for us. And you can use that mic. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and in silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and in iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted for the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time I will do this swiftly. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Thanks, Abby. I won't be commenting much on Isaiah 60 because we just don't have enough time. So I'll mostly be in Revelation 21. The end is where we start from. The end is where we start from. That's what T.S. Eliot wrote in the Four Quartets. In John the Revelator's final vision of heaven is not actually an end, but a new beginning. Eternal life. Everlasting to everlasting. The true story of the whole world started, remember, with the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pouring out His love and His grace and His generosity into creation that He called good. That creation became corrupted and rebellious and then opened the door for sin and death, alienation and distance from God. But then God set into motion a rescue plan by calling a community to himself. 
the spearhead of his renewal plan, a people blessed in order to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. Then he sent his very own son to live a a cross-shaped life and die a cross-shattered death in order to reform a people, to, to call a church around himself forgiven of their sins, us forgiven of our sins. Again, for the, for the sake of forgiveness and redemption of the world. This son, Jesus, rose from the dead. That's a, he rose from the dead. That's a unique episode in the history of the world, right? It didn't happen before. It hadn't happened since. But it's no longer unique because we're promised that those of us who die in Christ united to Him, shall also rise with Him. We're no longer slaves. We're, we're not chained to sin. We're, we're not enslaved to death. We're, we no longer live in the shadow of fear or, or finitude. But we experience and we express new creation. One writer sums up this Bible narrative as the sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. If the cross showed us what God's strength in weakness looks like in 3D, flesh and blood, in the person of Christ, the resurrection puts on display the most incredible thing we could imagine. Maybe, maybe we can't even imagine it. Everything we, we know or what we think we know about what it means to be human namely that our our bodies decay and someday we're going to die, that death is final, all that's called into question. You see, the whole book of Acts tries to make sense of this new thing in the early church. Because if, if someone's walking around named Jesus who tasted death, you know, Jesus whose heart stopped beating and his life ceased and it happened really publicly, if Jesus is walking around alive and well, about anything can happen. About anything can be redeemed if sin and death have been beaten. This is the cornerstone of our faith. Because Christ's resurrection flung open the doors for ours, our eternal life, our perfected bodies, our union with the Lord, us being near God forever. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. I was so excited to finally get to this sermon on new creation because it informs so much of the vision and, and the reason uh, for Oak Church. The scriptures that Abby read from Isaiah and Revelation, they not only tell of God's cosmic redemption, but also his, his presence with a people, with his people, in their worship of him. They tell of the surprise for what he has in store for us and the surprising amount of work he has for us to do do in eternity and now. They force us, and this is a paraphrase of 
of Leslie Newbegin, the force is not to be optimist or to be pessimist, but to live in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. They give us warrant for lives of, of hopeful realism. We're honest about this world's brokenness. We're honest about our own brokenness and sin. But we're determined to see it and our end in Christ who holds all things together. And that one day it all, that Christ will be our all in all. These scriptures have a startlingly large vision of who that message needs to be told to, who it's for, who it needs to be shown to, and who needs to be included in it. Most people are pretty scared to read Revelation for good reason. What, what are some of the main reasons that we're scared of Revelation? No one's scared of Revelation? This is great. We have Revelation scholars in our midst. This is, it's confusing. Yeah, it is. Um, I think one of the main confusion, and sure, there's like some of that imagery is like looking in a, a kaleidoscope, right? You know, you don't even know what you're seeing or what's real and what it all means. But I think one of the main confusions is that we don't really understand where we are or what time it is. Where we are or what time it is. For Revelation's picture of new creation to make sense, and for it to make sense for us, we need to understand that all that imagery is, is written in an overlap. It's an overlapping time. It's overlapping space. This probably sounds a lot like sci-fi. But here's a little what I mean. We understand overlapping time can start to imagine how something can already be true, already be happening, but not yet be here. Both and. We start to hear this kind of language when Jesus first shows up and starts announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Also, when Jesus starts talking in the Beatitudes, how he can, how he can say, blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Like, who mourn? Blessed? It's also in his prayer when he says, on earth as it is in heaven. We start to feel this for ourselves when we enter into a relationship with the Lord and, and we know ourselves as completely forgiven saints. But we don't look that different. We don't feel that different. Some of us don't act that different. In Revelation, we get a, a glimpse of this already, not yet, in the cosmic victory won for us by the Lamb who is slain. John's vision is as sure as if it had already happened. That we look around at everyday things and everyday places and everyday people and, and it doesn't look like it's happened yet. It doesn't look like Jesus has won. It doesn't look like it's even close to the righteousness and peace and justice and purity of God's will. Already and not yet. And Revelation also shows us an overlap of heaven and earth. That overlap is the state that creation started, but sin and death has driven it apart. But now it's being reconciled and reunited in Christ. And I, I, out of the uh, church like Twitter account, I like 
posted this link yesterday, this great video that talks about this overlap of heaven and earth because it's really confusing. But it's being reunited, reconciled, put back together, that middle part of the Venn diagram. And the Gospels talk about this when they talk about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus is the intersection. We're called in in Christ to witness to these little thin places that God is invading and reclaiming for His kingdom, making it on earth as it is in heaven. So this is a really different way of looking at the world. It inspires a whole different way to live, that, that we live in expectation that we might, even ourselves, in normal everyday life, see little flashes of heaven all around us because heaven is barely out of the range of our senses. It's like the other 99% of light that we don't see or the 90% of our brains that we don't use or like the thousands of living organisms that are on like the pin of a needle or like one scoop of compost, whole ecosystems. New creation occurs in the present, but it, it also waits. The whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand already, but certainly not quite yet. And kind of a note here, um, the main people that understand that the kingdom of heaven is not quite here yet are the people kind of on the underside. (laughs) The people that know that this isn't how it should be and it needs to get better. (laughs) Just in in case this is hard to grasp, look look at it through that filter and kind of understand where you're at on that map. I I struggle with that a lot of times. If things are good, we want them to get better, but mostly the same. The Revelation Scripture says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And this is a challenge for us living in the overlap. Trying to figure out, discern what's passing away and what's being renewed. Enjoying God's grace, but not wasting our time or our affections on what's going to be gone. That we live in that paradox, kind of that discomfort for a lot of us, for most of us. John's vision tells us that things will actually be different. There will be no temple, there will be no sun or moon, no sea, and all the false things will not be perpetuated ad infinitum, and there will be good reasons for this. There's no temple Because all renewed space will be sacred. Imagine that. Especially with the highly specific sacred imagination of Jews and early Christians that the whole earth will once again be full of God's glory just like the temple showed in a specific place. That God's grandeur will be evident. His presence known will be face to face. There will be no sun or moon not because of some sort of cataclysm like, like some of these end-of-the-world movies. Not because the sky is falling, but because God will truly be our everlasting light. God will be our light, our source, our knowledge. 
the backlight for everything we see, everything we experience. There won't be a sea, because now there's no gulf. There's no distance between us and God, or us and each other. That lake of fire that comes later in this chapter has eaten up everything that's caused separation from God. The new heaven and the new earth will be so synced that that expression, no man is an island, (laughs) that's going to be true. And there won't be any falsities. All the impurities will be consumed and left behind. The dross will be pulled out of the gold. No room for cowardice or unbelief when the veil's been pulled back. Those that are used to worshiping idols or killing, it'll be really awkward when they're out of place in a land of true worship where God's there and then there's no death. What are you going to do if all you know how to do is kill and now there's no death? I kind of wonder sometimes that what if the old world passing away and the new coming looks a lot like conversion and transformation rather than just demolition? We see it earlier in the book of Isaiah um, in his vision of swords being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. That these things that were once used for violence and destruction will now be implements for flourishing and growth. That things will be what they always could have been. That metal that was made into weapons always could have been tools for growth and food and and survival and flourishing. Maybe that maybe people will always be what they were made to be. That our cracked icons, that our image of God will be remade in the in the perfect pictures of Christ. So famously Martin Luther was once asked what he would do if he knew the world was going to end tomorrow. And I don't know if he really said this, but he probably could have said this, right? He said, plant a tree. If the world ends tomorrow, I'm going to plant a tree today. And this echoes a Jewish saying that it says, if you have a sapling in your hand and they tell you the Messiah has arrived, and the Jews are really looking for a Messiah, first plant the sapling and then go out and greet them as the Messiah arrives. The point of both of these is that even a little sapling tree like the tree out back, that little red oak tree that we planted like two weeks ago. Even that will have time to grow when Christ returns. Actually, all the time in the world. It'll flower and flourish and be transformed into some sort of eternal tree that will be better than I I can even hope for or imagine. I don't know what that's going to look like. I think planning it now and doing things like those small little acts of planning, I don't think they're little feeble gestures. I think they're powerful signs of faith and, and hope that God's future overlaps on our now and, and then continues for eternity. So this is what we mean when we talk about new creation. Not some sort of eternal rest, although a lot of us need some rest. <laughs> but work. (laughs) Work to look more and more like Christ. Work to make the world look more and more like heaven. 
fully understanding that none of this work comes apart from God's grace in the way that he's paved for it to happen in Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. Because, oddly enough, the, the scope of the new creation is no less than the massive scope of the original creation. Wrap your minds around that. The same God that breathed life into clay to make our ancestor Adam offers to breathe new life into each and every one of us. The same creative God that kind of organized and ordered the void and spoke everything we know into being, mountains and sea and wonder upon wonder, re-energizes that groaning creation charged with his splendor. Won't you join in this rescue plan? Won't you see that this is what we're made for? Can't you recognize that this is where it's all going? And Scripture says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And here I think we have the best picture Scripture gives us of heaven. A holy city. A new city of David where God's temple was, where God's presence was. And that's kind of surprising. I'll I'll quote Eugene Peterson at a little length here because this is a great little section of a book on Revelation. If if you're scared of Revelation, read read the book Reverse Thunder um, by Eugene Peterson. But he, said, he, he kind of talks about how this is kind of surprising, the city coming down. Because cities are, are full of noise. Cities are full of self-assertion, and they're forgetful and defiant of God. They're battering and abusive to persons. Heaven surely should get as far away from that as possible. Haven't we had enough of cities on earth? Don't we deserve what we long for? Many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida. And Florida's not that great. I've grown up there. Probably like Southern California or something. They want to think that the weather will be an improvement and the people decent. But the biblical heaven is not a nice environment far removed from the stress of hard city life. It is the invasion of the city, lowercase c, by the city, uppercase c. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. When some of the good folks from Lakewood Baptist or Yates Association approached the gathering church about the possibility of us ministering in Lakewood, right on the cusp of downtown, it struck a lot of folks as an odd shift. an odd shift of what we had been doing and what we'd known. Wouldn't being in the city be challenging? Some people are concerned, and rightfully so, that it might even be dangerous. Isn't Lakewood and all its like difference and diversity, isn't that a little daunting? Isn't there a lot of need in some cases, a lot of inequity? Uh, people living very different lives in close proximity. Doesn't even sharing a building with some people that don't speak the same language as us, isn't that intimidating? Yes, yes to all of that. All of that's true. 
But if our final destination, our final gift, a wedding present, (laughs) is a city from God, if that's the case, I suppose we should probably start figuring out how to navigate one, (laughs) maybe even by foot. (laughs) I think we should probably start to learn how to have neighbors and be good neighbors. I think maybe we should, we should know where the dark corners are and try to flood them with light because wouldn't it be a shame if the first time they saw light was when Jesus returns? And note of that scripture, note the direction that it's all headed. The new Jerusalem comes down. Most of our imagination is formed by a certain reading of one verse in First Thessalonians uh, are the opposite. They're, they're up. But even that verse says the Lord himself will come down. So this downward mobility of God is really different than our up theologies that make our bodies almost irrelevant or beside the point or can make the environment a victim of us being selfish or careless. If one day it'll all be on earth as it is in heaven, an invasion of the city by the city, why wouldn't we, even in our care and stability and service to real people in place, be getting ready for eternity? And the scripture says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God will dwell with them. He'll dwell with us. God will be with his people, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. This is, this is Advent language. It's fall. We're coming up on Christmas season. The language of God gracefully making a way to be with us, to be in our presence and us be with him. And we live between two Advents, Christ's birth, and it's coming again. And both require us to make room. We sing these. This is the great thing about Christmas songs is we sing all these songs about making room for Jesus. If we're, if we're in between Advents, though, we need to be singing those songs and developing those imaginations and hearts to make room for him again. To organize our lives around the surprises that he might show up at odd times, at odd places, and the faces of the people we least expect. This passage is also covenantal language. Straight from the mouth of characters like Ruth. Uh, I will go where you go. My people will be your people. My God, your God. Who foreshadowed that sort of steady love that's part and parcel of who God is and how God is. It's also the language of a wounded healer. Though his rule and his reign, he'll tenderly attend to the hurts and scars 
the sinful world has left us. And this is kind of your homework, is um, to imagine a world where those tears and scars find healing, but, but they, they don't just get erased. It's like when Jesus, when Jesus' resurrected body appeared to his disciples, they didn't recognize him except for his scars and his hands and his side and his feet. That by Christ's stripes, We've been healed and we've been called to receive healing now and forever and offer healing now and forever. We'll close uh, with the message version of St. Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5. He writes, What we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new, The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and Him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with Himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. Pray with me. Father, we uh, thank you for your friendship, for making that possible, and for, um, like a good friend, calling us um, to work with you, to work alongside you, and giving us the grace to do it. And we thank you for this massive, exciting, exhilarating version of new creation, this story for the whole world. We thank you that your spirit enlivens us uh, to be a part of it. Your spirit unites us to Christ in, in life and death, in eternal life. Father, this week, just open our eyes. Open our ears. Retune our minds, our imaginations to see how you're at work, how you're springing new creation around us. God, bind up wounds and, and, and heal scars and, and attend to us tenderly uh, if we're hurting. Give us that kind of hopeful realism uh, to imagine uh, your renewal. Help us experience that. Help us express it.